Good morning, everybody. Yeah, it's still morning. And congratulations on making it to church on the Sunday when the clock changed. Nice work. I know. Yeah, you can applaud for yourself. I'm fine with that. I, so it's a noble thing you've done. I, I do notice that some of you nor, normally come to the earlier service or here at the 1111. And I, understand, I completely understand why that is. I'm just happy you're here no matter what. My name is Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff and want to welcome you, whether you're a longtime family member around here or if you're a guest. Uh, we're excited that you're joining us, and we're going to continue our study and our worship uh, through the study of God's Word. Uh, I'm excited to say if you've been in this study with us over the last you know, months and year, uh, we finally get kind of a happy chapter. So that's something cool, right? The last few weeks, I feel like, that I've taught anyway, I've had to be like, well, today... We're going to be hearing more about some jerks being jerks to each other. So sorry. But today, not so much. Today we get hugging and kissing and crying and all these beautiful things. It's going to be really nice. Um, I should say, though, that that comes with a warning. It's going to be a fun text to look at together this morning. But I do want to give you a little bit of a warning in that uh, next week, not so much. Next week, it's going to be gross again. So just be ready for that. Um, And I'm only kind of joking. I'm mostly being serious. I want to just make sure you know that when we get to chapter 34 of our study of Genesis next week, that that text deals with uh, sexual assault. And and like literally, uh, there are some of you in the room this morning who've dealt with that or who are currently dealing with it and for whom that might be a bit of a trigger for you. It might be... uh, it might be the sort of thing that brings heaviness, and I don't want you to be surprised by it. I want you to see it coming. It might be beneficial for you to read Genesis 34 in advance. It's beneficial every week to read ahead, for sure. But I just want you to know in advance what's coming. And I want to say this. If you're somebody in the room who's dealing with sexual assault or has dealt with sexual assault, if you've been uh, traumatized or hurt or whatever, you're not alone. We are with you as a family, as a church. We stand beside you. There are all kinds of resources and ways in which we can help you and come alongside you. And so if you're dealing with that, um, I don't want to just point to it and say, oh, this is going to be hard next week. I want to say it may be hard next week, but we can be in it together. So just that, see that as an invitation to come and talk to one of us. There's uh, counseling resources and other things we could do to just try and be family together. But I did want you to know that while this week is pretty nice, uh, next week is a little bit heavy. So just be ready for that as we go. Uh, Genesis 33. Here's what we're seeing. We're we're seeing the reconciliation and and the... uh, the, the rejoining of Jacob and Esau, who have not been together in over 20 years. The last time they were together in the narrative we've been studying, uh, you'll remember that Jacob had sort of manipulated things to both take the birthright and the blessing. He deceived their elderly father, Isaac. And Esau was so furious and irate that he had basically said he was going to kill Jacob. Well, Jacob's mom and Esau's mom heard about that and was like, well, I don't want Jacob to be killed. So she sent Jacob away to go and find a wife. Meanwhile, over the last 20 years, he's not only found a wife, he's found a couple wives and some concubines. He's had all kinds of kids. And now through a series of events, he's coming back. And as he's coming back, Jacob understands that he's going to have this potential confrontation with his brother Esau. And the last time they were in the same space together, Esau was plotting murder. He had murderous intent in his heart. So the expectation and the understanding from Jacob is that he's probably going back to his death. That he's probably going back and when he sees Esau, Esau will make good on the promise from before and will kill him. We see some of that fear and that concern reflected even in Jacob's prayer. In Genesis 32, which we studied last week, in the midst of his prayer, one of the things Jacob prays in 32.11 is, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. So after praying for God to deliver him, 
After sending over 500 animals, right? We saw that also in 32, that knowing that Esau was ahead, Jacob had taken a bunch of his livestock, camels and, and sheep and oxen and whatever, and he'd sent them in little groups ahead to Esau, right? With the instruction to say, hey, go ahead, and when you come to Esau, I'd say, hey, look at all these animals. These are from your brother Jacob, who's pretty nice and maybe doesn't want to get stabbed, you know? Like, here you go, have some animals. He's trying to appease his brother, trying to sort of grease the wheels a little bit to make reconciliation possible. So after praying for reconciliation and deliverance, after sending forward these animals, then what we saw last week was that Jacob wrestles with God, and God, uh, God then sort of renames him, puts up enough resistance so that uh, Jacob is wrestling all night, and then he pushes him into this interaction with Esau, gives him a new name, Israel, and now we finally see this confrontation happening. In fact, at the beginning of Genesis 33, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He hears word back from his scouts that Esau is on his way and that Esau isn't just coming by himself, but that Esau is coming with 400 soldiers. I wonder how you would feel. If you heard that news, you probably would feel afraid. You probably would feel like, you know, you needed to tie up any loose ends, make sure your will was in good order. I remember a time, I worked for about nine years at Hume Lake, and part of my job at Hume Lake was to be, uh, I was the director of a, a college program there called the Joshua Wilderness Institute. So I was working with 60 or so college students year-round, and I will just say, like, I want to be careful because some of you are former Joshua students, so I don't want to disparage you. But every year at Joshua, we'd always have, like, one or two students who were Let's just say peculiar, just diff- like kind of kind of strange. We have a couple of weirder students, whatever, uh, and you know you work with them in kind of a different way. Sometimes, and the, the one particular year there was a kid. I'm going to call him Matt. That's not his actual name. You'll understand why I'm changing his name in just a second. But Matt was. Uh, kind of peculiar in a way that was very intimidating to others. He would just kind of stand and stare at people. He would say awkward things to them. He made people uncomfortable just by kind of the way he carried himself. So as a disciple maker and working in the Joshua Institute, several times I'd had to say to Matt, like, hey, you know what? You make people feel uncomfortable. Like when you're staring at them or when you say things the way you say them, people feel like you're threatening them. You don't smile. You're, you seem like you're angry. Like let's work on that. Like let's try and reveal Jesus a little better. And so I was working with this kid, but he wasn't really getting the drift. And then I found out that he uh, was, he had a hobby, which I didn't know about when we brought him into Joshua, which was uh, making and collecting knives, which is interesting. And it turns out he had a bunch of knives and he was making his own knives and carrying knives. And I don't have a problem with that necessarily, but when you put those things together, it just felt like there was a little bit of danger. And then uh, one night, I'm in my cabin, where my wife and I live in this little cabin at Hume, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and I hear this knock on the door, and I go to the window, which had like a little curtain on it, and I pulled the curtain back, and there is this kid, Matt, standing at the front door of my cabin. It's like nine o'clock at night, and he's standing, looking in his normal way, kind of intimidating, but he's got both his hands behind his back. And I thought, yeah, so this is how it ends. You know, like this is, this is the way I'm going to go. And so I, I looked at my wife and I said, hey, uh, Matt's here and I don't know what he's doing here. But just so you know, like I've been having conversations with him about getting rid of some of his knives and about being less intimidating. And he hasn't, that hasn't gone very well. And there's like a, I would say there's probably like an 80% chance that I'm going to step out onto the porch and get stabbed. So just know, like, here's the thing. When I get stabbed, 
don't try and come out and help me because that will just give him the opportunity to stab you also. What you want to do is lock the door and call 911 and then just hope that you can make it long enough that you also don't die. But it's been so nice being married to you and thanks so much for all the good memories and I hope our kids turn out okay, you know. And, uh, and, but I was just like really preparing myself to sort of take a knife, you know, like I thought that's what was going to happen. And so I, I step out onto the, the patio and I lock the door behind me. I close it and I'm like, Hey Matt, you know, like, what are you doing at my house at nine o'clock at night? And he's like, he kind of gives me this look and I'm just waiting for it. And he's like, and he pulls out his hand and to, to shake hands. And he goes, I just wanted to say, I'm really sorry. And I was like, Hey, not too shabby. Like that's better. So I reach out to shake his hand and then it occurs to me, he might be grabbing me to stab me with the other hand. So it's kind of like I turn sideways, give him a smaller target, slightly smaller target, you know. Uh, and I, it actually turns out he was just coming to say he was sorry and to make things right. I don't know if you've had a moment like that where you thought things were going to go horribly wrong. And instead they turn out going pretty good. Like things turn out much better than you were expecting. I will say that for these two brothers, there has only been betrayal and drama and threats of murder. There's only been uh, difficulty and anger and frustration. And now as he sees that, that Jacob or Jacob sees that Esau is coming over there with 200, 400, 400 men, He's expecting that this is probably the end of him. And so it is shocking and surprising to see what happens next. I do want you to note a couple things. While he does organize his family in preferential order, which is indicative of the old Jacob, right? He takes his concubines and their kids and sends them first. And then Leah, who's like not his favorite wife, and her kids second. And then uh, Rachel and Joseph, who are his favorites. He sends them in that order. I do want you to know, I don't love that about him. But what I do love is that in this particular case... We do see Jacob go in front of them all. So while he separates his family like that, he does take the lead. And not only does he take the lead, but it tells us in the text in verse 3 that he bows himself down along the way seven times before his brother. Well, that's the kind of uh, humility and the kind of honor and respect that one would give to a king. It's certainly not the kind of respect and honor that you would give to someone who would threaten to kill you. But I want you to see Jacob's humility in it. Because I do think, while Jacob doesn't do everything right, I do think we're seeing a different Jacob than we've seen before. I think coming out of the wrestling match with God and receiving the new name, I think we see a, a different perspective. I think we see a different sense of who he is and what God has called him to that includes some humility and some grace and some confidence in what God will do. He bows himself down, which in some ways flies in direct contradiction, if you'll remember, to the blessing that Isaac placed upon him. In Genesis 27, 29, in the midst of Isaac's blessing, he says, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your, bro- may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's interesting that Isaac says, hey, your brothers are going to bow down to you. And that in this particular case, Jacob doesn't cling to that. He doesn't insist upon it. As he's walking toward Esau, he doesn't go, hey, just so you know, you should be bowing to me because that's what the prophecy said. Instead, he humbles himself. He sets aside the things that Isaac said and he humbles himself before his brother. He bows before him these seven times. Look at Esau's response in verse 4. It says, but Esau ran to meet him, right? If you're Jacob and you're getting up from bowing for the seventh time, and now you see your brother, your murderous brother Esau, sprinting towards you, 
you probably still feel terrified, right? I was thinking about this moment where you're expecting something terrible and something good happens. And I was reminded of the, the scene in Goonies where, uh, where Chunk is tied to the chair and Sloth breaks free and Chunk is just sure that Sloth is going to kill him. But instead, Sloth picks him up and kisses him. Remember that? What a cool scene. If you haven't seen Goonies, what's wrong with you? That's not my problem. That's your problem. You need to go and see it. It's a great movie. But there's this great, mo- there's this great moment where it seems like Sloth is going to kill Chunk. And instead, they become great friends, right? It says here in verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Rather than Esau arriving and saying, well, it's about time. I'm finally going to get the vengeance that I, that I want. You know, I'm finally going to take it out of you. Or, hey, you owe me an apology or whatever else. I see you got a bunch of stuff. I came to collect it. Instead, what Esau does is he runs to his brother for the purpose of embracing his brother and hugging his neck and kissing him. And then it says they wept. They're both weeping together. It's a beautiful moment of reconnection. I would guess some of Jacob's weeping probably has to do with relief, right? The difference between expecting to be killed and being alive. At the same time, what we see is a hug and a kiss and we see weeping. We see this reconciliation. Don't miss. And I hope maybe for some of you, your mind goes to another place in scripture where we see this kind of a hug and a kiss. Jesus tells a story in in one of his parables about someone called the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a, a young man who went to his father and took all of his inheritance and went and spent it in a foreign land. Lived in a way that was uh, not approved by his father, certainly, and then spends everything he has and is absolutely in the dumps at, at his lowest possible point and thinks to himself, I'd be better off as a servant in my dad's house than I am here. He goes back to his father expecting to be scolded and expecting to be punished and expecting to be forced to pay all these things back. He's got a whole speech prepared. And before he can deliver his speech, his father runs to him and throws his arms around him Hugs his neck and kisses him and they weep. I wonder if when Jesus is telling the parable of the prodigal son, by the way, that particular story is meant to illustrate God's forgiveness of us, God's grace to us, God's reconciliation to man, even in all of our depravity. I wonder as Jesus is painting that picture, if he doesn't in the back of his head have the story of Esau and Jacob in his mind. Not a parable, not a myth, but an actual moment when two brothers who had been at at odds with each other and who had been at each other's throats We're now hugging each other's throats with love. We see Jacob approach this meeting with humility and courage. We see Esau approach this meeting with affection and urgency. Let's look at the way the story continues. Verse 5, Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children. He said, who are these with you? You can hear that, right? He's looking at all of these these children. Who, Who are all of these? I've never met any of these people. It's been 20 years. Who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. I want you to note here that Jacob doesn't point to the blessing. He doesn't doesn't point to the covenant, right? He talks about God's grace. He could very easily in this moment have said, well, I got all these kids. You should know that because I'm the anointed one, right? I have the, 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 the blessing that God passed from Abraham to Isaac to me. So it shouldn't be any wonder to have all these kids. He could have done that. He doesn't. He doesn't take the opportunity to point at the covenant. What he points at instead is the great grace of God. That's, that's strategic, I think. He says, these are the children that God has graciously given me. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near. They and their children. They bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? 
And what he's talking about there are the 550 or so animals that Jacob had sent in little stages. Like, what's the deal with all these, this like animal parade? It was cute, but what's the point, right? Jacob says this, to find favor in the sight of my Lord, verse eight, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have for yourself. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, or if you've got one of our Genesis journals, I would highly encourage you to take your pencil and underline the words, I have enough, or circle them, I have enough. That's key, I think, to the reconciliation we see in the text. Jacob says, I I want to give you this gift. I've got all these animals for you because I want to show you how how great God has been to me. And Esau goes, "Eh, I I don't need it. I have enough. Now, I, I just want to point out something really quick. Esau is content and he's satisfied with what he had. You may be new to our study, but if you've been in our study over the last many months, if you'll remember when all the shenanigans were going down with Jacob putting fur on his arms and them tricking Isaac and doing all the, all the things to try and steal that blessing. One of the things I said at the time was all of that was for no purpose. There was no reason for all the conniving and all the machination and all the deceit and all the, all the weird stuff because God had already said that he would bless Jacob. God had already said that's the way it was going to go. And what they had seen irrefutably was that God doesn't just bless one person upon whom the covenant rests, but that God blesses everybody in their proximity. Esau would be blessed. Jacob would be blessed. Even Abimelech, the foreign king, wants to get closer to Isaac, wants to get closer to Abraham, because they all know that whoever the blessing of God is upon, everybody else is going to get the byproduct of that. So what we're seeing now when we come to 33 is that Esau, who plotted murder, and who was furious with rage, and who married Canaanite women, and went and lived in a Canaanite city, who was a disgrace to his mother and father, even Esau says, I don't need a bunch of animals. I don't need a bunch of rich stuff. I don't need anything extra. I have enough. It's evidence that God's blessing is upon him and his family, even though he hasn't necessarily been a great guy. It proves what we talked about at the time, which was we don't need to be striving to accomplish things that God has promised. We don't need to be worried about holding on to things that God himself provides. Esau says, I have enough. But even though he objects, and this would have been a good time, by the way, if Esau had been vindictive, or if Esau had wanted revenge, or if Esau had still felt a sense of uh, injustice, this would have been the time for Esau to look at Jacob and say, you're going to send me 550 animals? Like, you think that settles it? You think we're just all fine now? You sent me a bunch of animals in a parade, and now I'm just supposed to forget the fact that you lied to our dad, you dressed up like me, you tricked me with the soup, and then you took my blessing? No way, this doesn't settle anything. The only reason I'm suggesting he could have said that is we've all done that, right? We've all done that in our lives when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I just, I just want us to be okay. And instead of going, okay, right, let, let's, be, let's have our relationship mended, many times our response is, I don't forgive you. Or I don't think that apology is sincere. Or I don't think that's true. We don't necessarily lean immediately into, I have enough and therefore I don't need you to give me anything else. We tend to go, yes, I would like your apology and I'm taking you to court, Right? <laughs> Yes, I would like you to say you're sorry and also I want you to pay me or whatever. Esau has no interest in in filling his pockets or or of even getting revenge or or seeing some sort of score settled. He is content. He says, I have enough. And Jacob comes back again. Jacob in verse 10 says, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. That's an interesting thing for Jacob to say because he has just wrestled with God. Right? And so he says, this interaction with you reminds me of something. It reminds me of the grace of God that I received from him. God has accepted me, and now you're accepting me. I see the two is connected. He says, please accept my blessing. 
Well, back up. He says, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, I would invite you to underline and circle the words, I have enough. Both of these guys see themselves as having enough. I think that's at the heart of this reconciliation. Thus, Jacob urged Esau, and Esau took the gift. So at first, Esau's like, I don't need anything, I have enough. Jacob comes back and says, man, being accepted by you reminds me of being accepted by God. He has blessed me so graciously. Please take the gift. It's the least I can do. Please take it. And Esau says, okay. Now from there, they move into a season where Jacob goes, okay, well, uh, let, let's go, right? And, uh, and Esau says, well, I'm going to accompany you and we're going to go and be together. And uh, theologians and commentators are a little split on what's happening here. Some people think that uh, he's offering protection, Esau. Some people think that there's still a little bit of intimidation in this, that Esau's going like, hey, me and my armed guards are going to stick around with you for a little while. Uh, some people think that Jacob's response is deceitful, that he tells Esau he's going to do one thing and he actually does another. Some people think that, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of theories, but here's what happens. Esau says, let's go on together and I'll accompany you. Jacob comes back and says, nah, we can't go together because I've got little kids and I got all these animals. They can't move at the same pace as an army. So why don't you guys go on ahead and we'll meet you in Seir later. I don't know whether it was Jacob's intention to meet him in Seir later or not. We don't see in scripture that they ever get there. What we see is that Jacob at first settles in Succoth and then he ends up moving on to Shechem. Shechem is not the place God called him to. And in fact, that's why some of the drama that will happen next week in 34 occurs. God had called him to settle in Bethel. I don't know why he doesn't go back to Bethel. I I think maybe Jacob didn't want to go to Seir. I think also there's some residual pain. In the same way that Jacob had a limp after his wrestling match with God, I don't think that Jacob was super trusting of Esau going forward. I think there was still a little bit of fear. I think there was a little bit of residual byproduct. When we've had brokenness in our relationships, sometimes there's a little bit of lingering fear. Or there's a little bit of lingering doubt or a little bit of lingering mistrust. That, that may be possible in Jacob here. Either way, here's what I want you to know. All of that is just a guess. Jacob's motivation, Esau's motivation, it's not in the text. We don't know. So, so I'm not going to give you a, a concrete theory. Here's what I can tell you concretely. At the end of chapter 33, these two men who had been at each other's throats, they separate in peace. That's the, most, that, that's the thing you can see without, irrefutably in the text. That at the end, these two guys who had hated each other, who had betrayed each other, these two guys in whose relationship there had been so much drama, they end up separating at peace with one another. The brothers separate, reconciled, and at peace. It's a lovely ending to a story that's been fraught with drama, betrayal, hurt, jealousy, pain. Now, when we look at it, there's a piece of this that I, I, for just a second, I want you to go, oh, so nice. Like people being nice to each other for a change, right? Because we don't see that all the time. Soak that up. Then I want to remind you that a text like this isn't particularly instructive. It's not written necessarily to be instructive. There isn't a place in the text where God speaks out of the clouds and says, those of you who are my followers should likewise get thee like Jacob or whatever. Like there's no place in the text where he says, now do it like that. And there's enough vagary as far as their motivation and whatever that we could look at it and go, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't see anything instructive in this. It's descriptive. It's a descriptive text. It's telling us what happened. It's telling us what went down and what went down is that these two guys who were fighting were reconciled with one another. But as a follower of Jesus, reconciliation is a big deal to me. 
right? As a disciple of Jesus, reconciliation is a big deal to me. So any place in the scripture where I see reconciliation, my radar goes up a little bit. And if you're a follower of Jesus in this particular church at this particular time, you know, and you've heard me talk uh, probably ad nauseum to the idea of us revealing Christ, being people of radiant peace and revolutionary kindness, right? Put Jesus on display, pointing at passages like the one in Peter that says, each of us with our different talents and gifts, with the the different ways God has brought us together. We're like living stones in a spiritual house that God is building to be a residence for his spirit. That God puts himself on display. That the Holy Spirit not only resides in me individually, but he resides in a special way in us as a people. So anytime I see reconciliation, I think of Jesus, who is the great reconciler. And I also think about my responsibility as a created being, as a follower of Jesus, to put reconciliation on display. So there are some things instructive here, even though the text itself is not necessarily meant to be an instructive text. When I see a passage like 2 Corinthians 5, and this, this won't be new to you probably and if you've been around here for a while, but 2 Corinthians 5.17, just listen to what it says about us. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We believe that in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. And just to, just to rehash this, we believe that the Bible teaches all men and women, all of us are broken, that we're sinners, we're separated from God. Our relationship with him is, is busted because of our brokenness. And yet God loves us and he wants us to have a relationship with him. So he sent Jesus to reconcile that relationship. Jesus comes to the earth and he takes our sin upon himself. He dies for us in our place, sheds his blood and is buried dead. Doesn't stay that way, rises from the dead, proves he's got power over life and death. He conquers the grave and not only proves that he has the power to make dead things live, he extends to us by his grace, resurrection life as well reconciliation with God through his shed blood on our behalf. He extends that to us. And if we believe in him, if we put our faith in him, then we are reconciled to God. That's a great, that's a great thing, right? And we celebrate that here, that we can be reconciled to God. If you have never put your faith in Christ, I can't emphasize strongly enough that you should receive the gift of resurrection life that is only possible in Jesus. But that message of reconciliation is not just something we believe and sort of pat ourselves on the back for and go, yeah, we're reconciled to God. Good for us. No, no, no. We receive reconciliation and then we are called and charged to be messengers of reconciliation, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, declaring to the world. And I don't think that's just in word. I don't think that's us going out and giving speeches, but putting the reconciliation of God on display in the way we interact with one another. That we become ambassadors of reconciliation by the way we live by the way we interact with other people. So when I see these two brothers fall on each other and weep and hug and kiss, I see Jesus on display. I see reconciliation on display, I I think, too, of Philippians 2, which you've heard me read before. But Philippians 2, 1 through 4, says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. I mean, I think that's most of us, right? Most of us are in a place where we're like, yeah, I have been blessed to know Jesus. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accordance of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? That we're to have the same mind as Christ, not clinging to what we deserve, not clinging to what we think we're owed, not clinging to what we think we're entitled to, but emptying ourselves of that, being able to say with Jacob and Esau, I have enough in Christ, and therefore I can be reconciled to my brother. Reconciliation should be part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, this will come as no surprise to you, We are not just in conflict with our bosses who maybe don't pay us the overtime we want. We're not just in conflict with our neighbor who ended up painting her door the wrong color and it wasn't in the HOA. We're not just in conflict with the guy who accidentally borrowed our shoes and never gave them back. The body of Christ, you guys, is in conflict with itself. There is division and there's frustration and there's hatred. There's a lack of reconciliation right here. It's not just outward, it's inward. We aren't putting Jesus on display many times because we're unwilling to do the things that Jacob and Esau have done here. I, I find a couple of instructive things. They're not exhaustive. They're not even strictly in the text. They're just things I observe and I would want you to treat them as such. But can I just point to you a couple of things that I, I found challenging as I looked at the text this week? The first one is that both of these men in Genesis 33 recognize they have enough. They recognize they have enough. You see, I believe that our human conflicts center on our perceived need. A need to get something, a need to control someone or something, a need to be right, a need to be appreciated, a need for an apology, a need for vengeance, a need for justice to be served, a need to get paid, whatever. We feel like we need something, and so we, are, we put ourselves at odds with other people who won't give us what we need or what we want. Sometimes it's just a perceived need. And in all of our human conflict, there is this lack of satisfaction. And yet the reason I think we see resolution in the lives of Jacob and Esau is that after 20 years and some, and some time apart from each other and the blessing of God, they realize, I don't, I don't really need anything from this other guy. I don't really need anything. I don't need more animals. I don't need an apology. I don't need any of that. I just want to be reconciled to my brother. I think many times the thing that keeps us from reconciliation in our human relationships is that we're insistent upon getting our perceived need. And if we will turn loose of that, we will find that our battles go away. When we see ourselves as having enough, when we understand that in Christ we have everything we need, our battles go away. God has been gracious to us, so we can and must be gracious to others. Let me put it a different way. God has been gracious to me, so I can and must be gracious to others. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. That's important. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. As God has been gracious to you, so you must extend grace. Why? Because we put that grace on display. It was never meant to be something we just received. It was always meant to be something we receive and reciprocate. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Love your enemies and do good and lend, and expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. He's saying show mercy to other people. God is even merciful to the ungrateful. People who don't appreciate it, who don't deserve it. Be like him, Jesus says. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The first thing I see in the text is that both of these guys recognize they have enough. And I think that in our conflicts, and I, and I, I don't want us to just think about this generally today. I would love for you to take a moment and think about the conflicts that are occurring in your life. They may not be huge. You might not have a conflict with your boss or your neighbor or whatever. It might just be little things, but there could be really big things. You might have a, a sibling that you haven't talked to in 20 years. You might have a parent or an in-law that you're in constant conflict with. You might have a boss or a coworker or a neighbor. There might be somebody sitting in this room on the opposite side because you can't stand to look at them in church. Figure out who you have a conflict with and figure out why you're still in that conflict. What is it that you think you need? Because there's a theological problem for us, and I'm talking about me here. In the moment where I remain in conflict with someone else, it's me saying, yeah, I get that I have everything in God. I get that I'm his son. I get that I've been redeemed. I get that he's given me his grace. I get that he loves me, that he's chosen me. But I also need an apology, right? I get that I have this, but I also need to be compensated for my time. I get that I have all of this, but I also need. It's, it's me at a theological level and a core level not being satisfied in the sufficiency of God. If I'm satisfied in the sufficiency of God, then I am free to turn loose of all those other things because I don't need them. And that gets me to kind of my second observation in Genesis 33. My second observation is that reconciliation with man flows from reconciliation with God. It flows from reconciliation with God. And in those moments where I'm refusing to be reconciled to my fellow man, or I'm standing at odds, or I continue to plot murder, or whatever, in those moments where I remain at odds, it's a moment where I haven't really understood the reconciliation of God through Christ on my behalf. Because if I could understand what God has given me, and if I could understand how little I deserve it, if I could understand how thoroughly I don't earn that, and how much God didn't need anything from me, and yet he gives me by his grace resurrection life, then I would pass that on to other people. And the more I understand the reconciliation of God for me, the more that reconciliation will flow out on other people. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it's my favorite story to illustrate the point. There was a time when my son Hank was little and he had all these little Thomas the Train engines, right? We talked about this before. They're not super cheap. They're like metal. They're like 10 bucks a piece or whatever. And he had collected a bunch of them as a little guy. He had lots. And uh, it, it, it was, it record, you know, like was a sizable, uh, you know, investment there over time. And one day he's got a little friend over the house. And uh, as his friend is leaving after they'd been playing, his friend has like 10 or 12 of these trains in his arms. And I'm like, oh, those are, those are, those are Hank's trains. And he's like, yeah, he said I could have these. And I was like, oh, did he? Okay. You know, the kid leaves with the trains. And, uh, and then after he leaves, I pull Hank aside. I was like, Hank, did you, you gave away your trains? You gave away your Thomas trains? Like, he goes, yeah, he really wanted them. And I was like, right, I know he really wanted them, but you really wanted them too. Like you asked for them, you saved up your money. That's like your birthday and Christmas and all this stuff. And you gave them away. And he goes, yeah, dad, because I know if I need more trains, you'll get them for me. <laughs> right? Now he was delusional, right? 
than buying him any more trains. But you've got you to gotta understand and appreciate his faith. You have to understand and appreciate his faith in his daddy to recognize, like, I don't need to hold on to these. My dad gave them to me, and if I need more, my dad, my dad can get more. You guys, that's how we're called to live in our relationships with one another. We're called to recognize that our father has given us everything. And if he's willing to give us everything and not hold our sins against us, then we can look at our brothers and sisters and do the same. We don't have to hold on to it because if we need something else, he'll give that to us also. I want you to see that these men both see themselves as having enough. They both see their reconciliation. Well, I would say, I I don't want to talk about Esau's relationship with God because I don't see it very clearly in the text. But I do see Jacob's relationship with God. And that sort of brings me to my third point. That there is, in, in Jacob at least, there is faith and action. I pointed at the very beginning at the idea that Jacob prays. I love the fact that he prays. In Genesis 32, he prays, God, will you resolve this thing with my brother because I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid he's going to kill the women and the children and we're going to die. Can you do something? I love that he prays, right? That he doesn't just try and do it in his own strength. That's really cool. And I would absolutely advocate for you as followers of Christ in the conflicts that you're in in the midst of right now to be praying that God would intervene, right? To be praying that God would help with the resolution solution and the reconciliation there. But many times for us as Christians, that's all we do. God, will you please make the thing with my mother-in-law better? And I, by the way, my mother-in-law's watching. I don't have a problem with my mother-in-law. Uh, we pray, God, will you, will you make the thing with my boss get better? Will you make the thing with my neighbor get better? Will you make the thing with my friends? You know, will you, will you restore this? And that's the end of it. God, I prayed, so it's your job to do it. What I want you to see here in Genesis 33 is that Jacob prays, but he also acts. I like the combination of faith and action I see in Jacob and it was convicting to me this week that it isn't just him sort of going, hey God, would you sort this out? But it's him going, God, will you sort this out? And then sending 550 animals and then bowing seven times and then insisting on giving the gift. You see the, you see the combination of faith and action? I love the fact that if nothing else, that these two men are moving towards each other. That they're moving towards each other. I don't know who you're in conflict with. I don't know how long that conflict's been there. I don't know how many conflicts were happening in your life. But when's the last time you made a gesture to move toward the conflict instead of away? Because we tend to find conflict and then move further and further away from the people we're in conflict with. We tend to find conflict and and then sort of move further away and group up with people who agree with us. That's tribalism, right? And what we see in Jacob and Esau is that even in the midst of fear and worry, Jacob is moving towards Esau. Esau is running towards Jacob. They're moving towards each other. You want to know why I like that? It reminds me of Jesus again. When we talk about the incarnation, right? Big theological word that just means God, the God of the universe, came to earth in a body. When we talk about the incarnation, you know what we're talking about? We're talking about God moving towards us. That he comes to us. That's the second part of that passage in Philippians 2. I didn't even quote. But that God didn't consider his godhood a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, right? That, that is a movement toward us. Reconciliation with man happens because God moves toward us in our brokenness in Christ. So I feel convicted and compelled that in my conflicts and in my human relationships, number one, I need to be praying, but there needs to be faith and action, a movement towards the ones I'm in conflict with. Not only that, my resolution with other people will flow out of my understanding of God's reconciliation with me. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, it's the ability to say, I have enough. I don't need anything else. What I have is good. I don't need an apology. I don't need to get paid. I don't need 550 animals. Jesus has called me his son. Jesus has called me his child. Jesus has redeemed me and restored me. And I'm satisfied in that. I would want to encourage you this morning 
to think about the conflicts in your life, to look at this beautiful passage of these two brothers, not stabbing each other, but hugging each other, and go, they're putting Jesus on display and they don't even know it. We know it. And so then should we be putting Jesus on display in our relationships with one another. Reconciliation, as we put that picture out for the world to see in the way we interact with each other and the world. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would bring reconciliation both in our relationships, in our families, in our workplaces, in our friendships. We even pray it on a global scale. We think about the war that's happening in Ukraine and we pray for your reconciliation there, for you to show yourself strong and to bring resolution and reconciliation for your protection and safety in that place. God, I pray that you would that you would paint this picture of grace and kindness and forgiveness and that you would paint that picture through us and our behavior towards one another, that you reconciled us to yourself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that we would be your ambassadors. Help us to take that serious and to be inspired by a story of two brothers who could be fighting, but have found a way to be satisfied in you and in what you have done so that they can put their battles to rest. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.